Got a question for a child. Got to be grade school or lower, okay? What does Emmanuel mean? Yes, sir. God with us? You got it, my friend. That's right. God with us. Praise God. He is with us. All right. And we're going to talk about how he came to be with us this morning as we consider one small child. Our scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. One of the many familiar passages and one of the ones that we'll be doing when we go out caroling. Uh, next Saturday, Sunday afternoon at 4.30. And so that's another reminder for you. Hear the word of the Lord now with careful and close attention. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the, of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. May God add the blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we consider the wonder of the incarnation, Lord, after all of these years, it should all sound so old, but it's not. And Lord, let it, let it ring true in the back of our minds today and in our hearts. Let us hear that story once more and respond in worship awe and glory to you for the gift of heaven we pray in Jesus name amen in the days of Caesar Augustus 2,000 years ago and a little more the might of imperial Rome was menacing overshadowing all-encompassing and the message to all of Rome's provinces and those that would soon become provinces and be annexed into the Roman Empire, there was a heralds that were sent out and a message was proclaimed. And they borrowed the concept from the Greeks. It's called a gospel. But it was known as the gospel of Caesar Augustus. If you remember my series on the gospel we talked about that historical aspect. It, the heralds went out and announced the reign. A savior king, a Pontifus Maximus, had risen to his throne and was now making peace 
But the implication was you dare not oppose him and his peace. Caesar Augustus was declared a god and the rights of worship were established for him throughout the empire. Meanwhile, in a little backwater village in ancient Israel, small corner of the empire, the birth of a baby boy was overlooked by all the historians and all the significant people of his day. Only a few gospel writers speak of him. But they proclaimed another gospel. The true gospel. The gospel that would bring hope and healing and salvation to a world in brokenness and darkness. That couldn't simply be a political solution that would solve the greatest enemy of humanity. And that is our sinful hearts. This one who came and proclaimed the way of salvation, who was a true priest and king sent and come down from God because it was God in the flesh. He proclaimed a different kind of gospel, a good news telling of a new world order that came about not through might, but through humility and through laying down his own life and rising again in order to create the possibility of new life and life for everlasting for those who would believe in him. Augustus's great empire would in time become just another bookmark. But this gospel, this king of this one small, about this one small child, continues to reverberate and echo down through the corridors of time and will until time is no more. One of the most important questions we ask ourselves this in every Advent and Christmas season, we ought to, is this. If Jesus came to reveal God to us, if he came down from heaven and he took on our flesh in order to reveal and show us what God is like, and that is why he came, then what can we learn from his coming, from his incarnation? Why did God take on human flesh? Why did he become one of us? What can we learn when we ponder and meditate on that idea of what does Jesus' coming reveal about God and who he really is. I'm going to talk about just two things this morning. Not exegeting this passage. This is more, more topical in nature. But there are two things that are clearly revealed here. The circumstances of that first Christmas are not the things we normally think about when we think of God. When we think of God, we think of mighty and powerful and awesome and wondrous. And he is all of those things. But when we think and meditate on the incarnation about this great God coming as one small child, it tells us two very important things about God. First of all, one small child shows us that God is humble. That's the first thing the incarnation teaches us, that God is humble. 
Now, if that seems a little bit strange to you, it should seem a little bit strange to you. It's, that's not normally when the way we think of God. That's not the first thing that pops into our mind when we envision the Almighty. But if the incarnation teaches us about God, it points to what seems to be almost a contradiction in terms. But it's not. And that is a humble God. He's the God of the universe. Before the coming of Jesus, you need to understand that no self-respecting author would have ever used the word humble to describe someone in a complimentary way. That was not a complimentary thing if someone says, oh, he's a humble man. That would have been repudiated because we know victory goes to the strong, to the mighty. Humility, the Greeks despised. The ancient world had no place in their vocabulary for that. It was a derogatory term, not a compliment. Imagine it, the maker of all things, reducing himself to an ovum to become a fertilized egg scarcely visible to the human eye. And yet that's exactly what Isaiah prophesied and what Philippians tells us. Listen, Philippians, Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That man, humble like this, we didn't esteem. The world didn't esteem. And yet, so God came. Listen to Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Who, talking about Jesus, the incarnate one, who being in very nature God, he was God. He is God. He forever will be God, but he became something he was not in order to reach us. He came in humility. Philippians says, who by its very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became Obedient to death, even death on a cross. Inconceivable, unbelievable, incomprehensible. You see, the cry of Muslims is Allah Akbar, which means what? God is great, and He is. But you see, that truth 
for us to know that is if, if we, we remember that we are creatures, if we haven't gotten so full of the nonsense we're being told today that we can be anything, we can be gods and all, if we haven't believed any of that junk and garbage, as creatures, we know that God's great. We can intuit that by the things seen, Romans 1 tells us. Down deep inside, there is no atheist. Everyone knows that God is great and the evidence is all around you. And if you cannot see it, my friend, you are blind. But that truth, it takes no special teaching for men to grasp. It's innate. It's an echo of being creatures made in God's image. But the fact that God, we are being told in these passages and in this act of the incarnation, that God is little, that God has become small and humble, that only the coming of Jesus could reveal. There is no way we can know that's who God is also unless Jesus had come. And these records prophesying or telling after the fact of what it did and what it accomplished through his humiliation, becoming humble. You see, the God that moves kings like pieces on a chessboard, he came upon a scene in ancient Israel as a tiny baby. Unable to speak or even eat solid food, he was dependent upon a teenage girl for his protection. The God of the universe who made everything and everything in it. What vulnerability. What humility. What a contrast. The sovereign king and heir of all things in an animal shelter with no royal attendance and nowhere to lay his head but in a stone cold feeding trough. You think it looks like that? Looks like that? With a lot of nice hay? Well, maybe some hay may have been in there. But that thing was a piece of stone. Mangers were stone, bread, uh, uh, grain holding for animals. If it was chilly, that, that cradle, that manger was icy cold. Yes, angels chorus the night, but it was the who? It was the despised and lowly shepherds that attended the birth and gazed upon the babe of Bethlehem. How fitting that is, isn't it? How fitting is that? That such people, these, these despised, lowly shepherds would be the first ones to witness the glory that had come on that night. And what good news that is for us about how God works. He takes down the mighty. He lifts up and raises up the humble and the downcast. You see what this tells us, folks, is that the incarnation, the fact that Jesus came as that one small child tells us 
that grace is now available street level. It's available at the bottom. It's where it all flows down. Street level grace has come in the incarnation of Jesus. That means you don't have to climb up. You can't climb up to find it. You've got to go down. You've got to embrace it as Jesus came. And there, and there you find grace to help in our time of need. Grace to forgive all our sins. But there's another thing here in this text that's revealed in the act of the incarnation that's recorded here. One small, small child also shows us that God is approachable. He's not only humble, he's approachable. Now, most of us, if we have a church background, and I imagine a lot of you do, um, and if you don't and you're here today, we're still really excited you're here. Hope you're going to keep coming. Come back, keep hearing about the story of Jesus. Most of us, though, who have had church attendance in our background, it's pretty normal for us to approach God in prayer and worship. That's part of what we do as his followers. Uh, because he is God and he deserves all praise and worship for our salvation, we come to him uh, with freedom and access to bring our prayer and worship. But do you realize that that was not always true in the history of the world? Matter of fact, for most of the history of the world, this has not been true. Not until the coming of that one small child. You see, Jesus made a change in how we can approach deity. How you and I, as sinners, can approach God. Before his coming, except for the hope promised in certain sacrifices and prophecies, we didn't have a way except through the most careful, and all of that was really picturing what Jesus was going to come and do, the sacrificial system. But God had to be approached very carefully. Today, Hindus offer sacrifices still. And the Jews would if they could, but they have no temple anymore. But they would if they could. And Muslims' forehead touch the ground and bow. But you know, all of those are fear-based approaches to their God. They're fear-based. And you know what? There were reasons before the coming of Jesus and before what was prophesied would be fulfilled in him. Before Jesus' coming, Old Testament worship was often associated with fear. Things like burning bushes, hot coals, extraterrestrial visions. If you don't think that won't scare the gajibis out of you, it will. Every time an angel shows up, nobody goes, oh, hey, let's have a party. Angels are here. This is going to be good. Hey, how about singing? No, no. They were scared out of their minds. You see, often those close encounters with God that we find recorded in the Old Testament came by way of scorched, glowing, or half-crippled people like Jacob. When you come close to God. But with Jesus' coming, 
All of this was foretold. All of this was coming. It was, it was being hinted at and foreshadowed and typified. But it wasn't here yet. It wasn't reality until Jesus came. But when he came, Hebrews tells us he opened a new and living way to approach God boldly. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. So the great hymn, And Can It Be, says, You see, when he came, he came and opened the approach to God, one that would no longer emphasize the vast gulf between God and man. It's still there, but God, Jesus has come and become the bridge, the span to connect the two and to bring a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Listen to how it's talked about and spoken. Listen to the contrast in Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. You have not come. He had been talking. If you read before verse 18 in Hebrews 12, you get this scary, dark picture of how dangerous it was to come near the living God. But then, because of Jesus, this is what happened. You, he's writing, he says, now that Jesus has come, you who put your trust and faith in him, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But then the writer says this, Now, because of Jesus, you have come to another mountain. Not Sinai, Mount Zion. Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. And you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. And you have come to God, the judge of all men, and the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The old has been fulfilled. The old, the new has now come. And this is the mountain upon which you live. This is now the way of access to the living God that we can come boldly and approach him without fear as his children and know that we will find grace to help in our time of need. You see, on that inconceivable night, my friends, in one small child, the God who knows no before and knows no after. He's always been and always will be. But at one point in time, he entered it. The God who knows no boundaries took on a shocking confines of a baby's skin. The God who knows no before or after entered into time and space. Or as... One of my favorite Christmas groups, as you know, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, in one of its lyrics, mused this. 
could you be this old and have your life just begin? Pondering the incarnation, O'Neill said, can you be this old and have your life just begin? My friends, do you realize this is a story like no other? Not that ever has been nor ever will be. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the difference made by that one small child is immeasurable. It is unending. It is forever for those who put their faith and trust in him. The implications of the incarnation are summarized so beautifully by Michael Card. Again, in one of his works, the final word, listen to this. And then I have a quote from old little town of Bethlehem. The final word, Michael Card says, he spoke the incarnation. And then so was born the son, God's only son. His final word was Jesus. There's no other one coming. It's finished. It's done. There's nothing else. The final word was Jesus. He needed no other one. Spoke flesh and blood so that he could bleed and make a way divine, become the stairway to heaven that Daniel, that Nathaniel saw. The Son of Man descending and ascending on it. He spoke flesh and blood so that he could bleed and make a way divine. And so was born the baby who would die to make it mine and yours. If you trust him, if you believe in him. The first verse of a little town of Bethlehem ends this way. And the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight in the coming of that one small child at that focal point all of the fears that we have all of the hopes that we have they're all rolled into him the final word do you know him do you love him do you trust him are your hopes and fears met in him let's pray Amen. Father, oh Lord, let anyone within the sound of my voice, if they're all of their hopes are not in Jesus Christ, if all their fears, they're looking to something else to, to remove them, to overcome them, to banish them. Oh Lord, let them see this is, there is no other. This is the final word. It's the only hope of heaven and earth. Father, this one small child, Jesus, your son, our savior. Lord, help us that all of our hopes and fears will be met in him today, tonight, next week, next month, until the end of our days, until we see him face to face. And when we become like him, when we see him as he is, and we pray in Jesus' name.